and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. This week, I was a guest at a panel discussion hosted by the Arab Center in Washington, D.C. We discussed U.S. foreign policy towards Iran, Iran's foreign and regional policy under the new administration, and the future of the nuclear deal. I was joined by experts Barbara Slavin, Dalia Dasake, and Elon Goldenberg. And the panel was moderated by Mehran Kamrava. Good afternoon and welcome to this panel titled U.S. Policy in Iran, the final panel of the Arab Center Washington, D.C.'s sixth annual conference focusing on U.S. policy and global competition in the Middle East. My name is Mehran Kamrava. I'm professor of government at Georgetown University here in Qatar and head of the Iranian Studies Unit at the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies. Our panel this afternoon will examine U.S. policy toward Iran and the future of the Iran nuclear deal, also known as the JCPOA under the Biden administration. We'll also discuss domestic developments in Iran under the newly inaugurated Raisi administration. In addition, the panelists will assess Iran's regional agenda and its relations with global powers including China and Russia. They will analyze U.S. sanctions, provide policy recommendations for the Biden administration, and outline the need for a new U.S. strategy in the region in light of global power dynamics, particularly with Russia and China. Joining me today are an outstanding group of experts, people I've read and learned a lot from. Allow me to briefly introduce each of them in speaking order. Ilan Goldenberg is Senior Fellow and Director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. He's a foreign policy and defense expert specializing in Iran's nuclear program, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the broader challenges facing the Middle East. Negar Mortazavi is a journalist and political analyst who's been covering Iranian affairs and U.S.-Iran relations for over a decade. She's a columnist for The Independent and host of the Iran podcast. She's a frequent media analyst on Iran and U.S. foreign policy and has appeared on multiple U.S. and international media outlets. Barbara Slavin, is the director of the Future of Iran Initiative and non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. She's also a lecturer in international affairs at the George Washington University. Barbara is widely published and is a regular commentator on US foreign policy and Iran. Finally, Dalia Dasa Kay is a senior fellow at the UCLA Berkel Center and former director of the Rand Center for Middle East Public Policy. Most recently, she was the 2020-2021 Wilson Center Fellow with her Middle East program, where she focused on U.S.-Iran foreign policy and other related topics. Dahlia's expertise include arms proliferation and control, international diplomacy, Iran, Israel, the Middle East, and the Gulf region. Sincere thanks to all of you. I will now turn it over to Ilan for his remarks. 
Uh, thank you, Mehran, and thank you uh, to all, all the other panelists. It's great to be with you with the Arab Center for this discussion. Um, <clears throat> so I thought I would do is speak for a few minutes about really U.S. policy in the Biden administration and where we've been over the past year and where things might be going, um, especially on the nuclear negotiations. Um, <clears throat> so look, the Biden administration came in in January um, really with a sort of two pieces to its agenda with regards to Iran. Um, it wanted to first return to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, <clears throat> the Iran nuclear agreement uh, that had been signed under President Obama and then that President Trump had walked away from. Um, it then it wanted to build on that agreement um, with what it, I think still, I believe this is still the policy, um, you know, with a quote unquote longer and stronger agreement, <clears throat> excuse me, which really meant looking at some of the weaknesses of the JCPOA, things such as, you know, concerns about eventual sunset provisions where certain limitations would come off, um, you know, concerns about disagreements with Iran in the region and building on the JCPOA by exploring other opportunities for negotiated agreements in these other spaces. Um, you know, and um, so far, unfortunately, like we haven't been able to get back into the JCPOA. Um, and it's unclear if, if there is gonna be a return to the JCPOA. And if not, if you can still move in any of these other places to make some diplomatic progress. <clears throat> now, I would say the last few months, or really the, the, the term of the Biden administration thus far has really been divided into three phases. Um, the first phase was really just the first few weeks of the administration, um, where I think, unfortunately, um, there was some miscommunication and different expectations on the U.S. side and on the Iranian side. From the U.S. side, there was time to deliberate, decide, is this really what we want to do, move forward with returning to the agreement? Um, you had a lot of key Biden administration officials going in front of Congress for their confirmation hearings. Congress is notoriously hawkish on Iran. The language that was coming out of the Biden administration responding to those questions was inevitably gonna be more hawkish than maybe the overall policy. And so you had that on the US side and then on the Iranian side, you had these expectations, these overinflated expectations that on day one, the US would be rushing back into the agreement unilaterally, which I don't think was ever going to be the case. Um, and you also had on the Iranian side, unfortunately, this precedent from the Trump administration uh, where you know, the Iranians have decided they would not engage with the United, with the Trump administration unless you had some kind of sanctions relief up front. And so this then ended up carrying over to the Biden administration. And so the end result of all of this was kind of a frustrating first few weeks, where by the end of February, when the U.S., uh, together with uh, the Europeans, the E3 and the EU, offers a direct channel of negotiations and beginning talks, um, Iran rejects it and rejects a direct line of, of communication with the United States. And unfortunately, I still think, even though we've gotten back to negotiations, we still haven't had direct engagement between the US and Iran, um, which is a big problem. I actually think, sadly, we had more direct engagement between the US and Iran during the Trump administration, because at least Iranian government officials were talking to former Obama administration officials. Now they won't talk to any of those officials. So you know, sadly, we're even in a worse place from that perspective. Um, then you moved into the second phase, where finally you were able to get you know, the sides together in this negotiations in Vienna, which unfortunately were indirect, basically with the E3, France, the UK, and Germany, together with um, Russia and China, the other members of the agreement, and the EU, all negotiating with the Iranians and then taking these, you know, these discussions in Vienna to the Americans, and it's a very kind of cumbersome process. Um, and, you know, making some progress, the negotiations were about how to return to the agreement, but still some key sort of disagreements. Um, one was in areas of, of, of that needed to be addressed. One was, you know, the steps Iran would have to take 
um, basically to limit its concerns about the research and development activities Iran had undertaken over the past few years um, since it left the agreement and whether some of those steps were reversible or how you would deal with those. Um, that was a concern on the American side and the European side. Um, you know, for, for Iran, there was this real concern about sequencing, right? The U.S. would prefer a sequence where the two sides take mutual steps to go back into the agreement. Iran's view was the Americans walked out of the deal, so you should first provide the sanctions relief, and then we will provide, you know, we will go back in and meet with our obligations um, on the nuclear side. There was also Iranian concerns about guarantees that a new administration wouldn't overturn the agreement, which the U.S., by the nature of our political system is unable to provide. Even if you had a treaty, you know, Donald Trump has proven he can walk out of a lot of treaties. So, you know, there is no way to provide that absolute guarantee of what a next administration might do. Um, and you also had concerns on the American side because as all of this is going on, you know, the Iranian team, you know, government continues to escalate in terms of continuing to violate the agreement, continuing to stay, take steps, you know, to move closer and closer towards getting closer to a nuclear weapon, um, or at least the ability to make a nuclear weapon. And so all those things together, like created a pretty, you know, an environment that unfortunately during that sort of April to June phase, we weren't able to overcome. Now, the hope was perhaps that, you know, the, we'd go into the third phase, which is then Iran has its presidential election. Uh, President uh, Raisi is elected. He comes to office in August. Um, the hope was that perhaps during that lame duck period between June and August, you might get to an agreement with the old Rouhani team and then be able to implement it, you know, begin implementing it. And then Raisi and the new team could get the credit for the sanctions relief while Rouhani would take sort of all the negative um, uh, incoming fire for, for the concessions on the nuclear front. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Um, despite some expectations, it might, despite even some Iranian negotiators signaling that it might, um, really everything got put on pause. Um, and everything has been fundamentally on pause since, um, but not totally on pause because the nuclear program keeps moving forward. Um, and so this is, this takes us to where, uh, to where we are today. Um, now you had, um, a recent crisis and concerns about, you know, certain steps Iran was taken in lack of cooperation with the IAEA that was fortunately sort of put back in the box uh, with an agreement um, from the IEA, with the IEA's team on continuing sort of some of the monitoring mechanisms in place with the nuclear agreement that were starting to come off. So, um, you know, you we are going to continue to see these little escalations and moments of crisis and maybe walk back, which we just saw last week. Um, but the question is, can we actually get back to a dialogue at this point? And can we actually still either get back to the JCPOA, or if that is not possible, look for something else. Um, now, to be honest, I'm, I'm at this point, you know, I started out quite optimistic. At this point, I, I still think it's the best option, but I'm much more pessimistic and concerned um, because for a couple of reasons. One, um, if, you know, the U.S. and Iran weren't able to come to an agreement on returning when you had the old negotiating team, Iranian negotiating team in place, even if the supreme leader and the people around him are the ultimate decision makers, not the negotiating team, right? Um, it's still easier to negotiate with people who you know, who you've worked with. They're going to be willing to be more creative in the room. Their voice matters when they're talking to the supreme leader. Now you're going to replace that whole team with a much more hardline kind of element, much more skeptical about the JCPOA. And frankly, like just a team that, that doesn't know the Americans as well and is going to speak a bit of a different language that I think in some ways is going to grate on American negotiators. 
And also the Americans are going to say things that are going to grate on these Iranian negotiators. Um, you know, it's just a different level of challenge. And so I'm really worried that if we weren't able to do it with the old uh, Rouhani team and uh, how it's going to work now. Um, the other thing I think is, I, I think maybe on the U.S. side, fundamentally, we just underestimated how much damage, you know, Donald Trump had done and how much he had really undermined, you know, confidence that something like this could work, um, you know, and so this is the new reality we're facing. Um, so, look, I still think you should try, but I also think it's time to start looking at alternative options. Um, I think most likely what the Biden administration will do if we can't get back into the JCPOA um, is you will continue to see them leave that option open, also be more willing to look at other options, maybe short of a full return to the nuclear agreement, you know, like a little bit of sanctions relief for a little bit of limitations on, on the nuclear front. Um, you will see the sanctions continue and maybe even get tougher. Um, you will see continued efforts to sort of counter Iran in the region, and you'll see Iran responding with support for various proxies um, and taking various steps in the region. Um, I do hope that, and I'm sure some of my other panelists will talk about some of the interesting developments in the region where Iran has been engaging more with other actors and everyone has been engaging with each other. For a long time, the view in the U.S. has been deal with the nuclear program first, then look at other challenges that are actually harder. But if right now it seems like we're we're not making any progress on the nuclear front, but there, interestingly, you did have a conference last month in Baghdad where you had Iran and many of the key Arab players. So maybe there's space to make progress in the regional front, even if the nuclear issue is still a challenge. Um, but this is where we're going. I think plan B, frankly, is just near, not nearly as good as a return to the JCPOA, unfortunately. Um, and so I think you need to continue to hold out hope. But, you know, I would say the chances of success have, have gone down pretty far. Um, I think um, I will probably I, I was also asked to speak about a little bit about Israel and sort of its perspective on Iran. But I might stop there and maybe leave that for Q&A and let some of my other colleagues chime in. Perfect. Thank you very much, Ilan. Uh, Nagar, over to you. Thank you, Mehran. Thank you so much to the Arab Center for holding this very timely and important event. And hello to my fellow excellent panelists and to everyone who is watching us today. Um, so I was asked to talk about Iran's domestic developments. There have been, as it was mentioned, some very important developments and shifts in Iran's political structure recently. And I also want to talk about um, this sort of six months um, of the first six months of President Biden's administration and how that overlapped with Tehran and also a little bit about the Trump year. So um, just briefly, as we know, there's a new administration in Iran, a hardline president, a hardline administration of ideologues uh, with a very anti-Western and especially anti-US stance. They have been very vocal in their opposition to negotiations, to the JCPOA, and um, the Trump years, the maximum pressure policy of President Trump uh, during those years actually gave more munition to these hardliners. And I believe that their ultimate win of, or consolidation of power was in fact um, direct, one of the direct results of those hardline years or of the maximum pressure of President Trump. And it wasn't just a presidency, this previous um, election, it was also the parliament the year before that Iranian parliament where um, the hardliners, um, of course, with the help of uh, eliminating their main rivals, the moderates and reformists um, from the 
uh, candidates list. They were able to consolidate uh, the Iranian parliament, which was previously controlled mostly by the moderates and reformers. So the Iranian parliament last year was turned over to the hardliners. The presidency, basically the administration is now turned over to the hardliners and is sort of a, a full circle consolidation of power for the conservative hardliners in Tehran after about eight years um, of the moderate rule, at least uh, when it came to the administration of Hassan Rouhani. It's also important to note that this presidential election, this uh, recent one in Iran, um, even though the presidential elections are every four years, this was the turn of presidency. So this was basically the most important political event in the country for the next almost eight years. It's very likely that Ibrahim Raisi will remain president if the succession to the supreme leader doesn't uh, become an issue within the next eight years for two terms, which has been um, the, the tradition in the Islamic Republic. And so basically what's happened is that the Joe Biden administration will now have to deal with a very hard line and more conservative uh, political structure in Tehran compared to what was um, in the past eight years. And the Trump years, the way the Trump years basically empowered the hardliners and sort of shifted the political structure um, into, into this more hardline and conservative direction was a combination of the pressure, the rhetoric coming from the White House, and of course, most notably, the withdrawal from the JCPOA. So President Trump, after threatening many times during the campaign, the election campaign, and then in the White House, eventually pulled out of the JCPOA in 2018 and started this campaign of maximum pressure, which then put Tehran into a defensive mode and help um, the hardliners basically take the upper hand and put more pressure on the moderates, um, essentially putting them in a corner that trusting the United States, trusting the Americans, signing an agreement with them, negotiating with them and shaking hands basically doesn't mean anything. And um, what I think is important to note here is that this new administration, this hardline administration of Ibrahim Raisi, in a way uh, can be compared to the years of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. That's the most recent and the closest example we have to look at when it comes to Iran's diplomacy with the United States, engagement with the West. But it's also a little bit different. Ibrahim Raisi comes with a strong baggage. He has this um, very extensive um, record of gross violations of human rights as it's been documented uh, by prominent human rights organizations for his role in Iran's judicial system. Almost since the beginning of the revolution, he was part of a um, death committee that was responsible for ordering the execution of political prisoners in the 1980s. He was again oversighting the Iranian judiciary in the uh, past, um, in the couple years leading up to his presidency, which again oversaw executions and harsh sentences being handed to protesters and political prisoners. And the baggage that he comes with is not something to be overlooked when it comes to Iran's engagement and relations with the West. It's going to make things more complicated in bilaterals with the Europeans. It's going to make things more complicated, um, even for simple events like a trip to the UN General Assembly in New York. Um, this year, he's going to speak virtual. His speech is going to be virtual. But after COVID, that's also something uh, that remains to be seen for someone at Ramnaisi who has been sanctioned 
by the United States. And um, the team of ideologues also that he has in place, the cabinet, the foreign minister is a, a hardline, has had a hardline anti-West stance. The person uh, who's just recently appointed to be in charge of negotiations also has a very different stance than the previous lead negotiator, Arakchi. And it, from, from the experience of the Ahmadinejad era and from the record of the Ibrahim Raisi team, it just seems like the country is going to take a more hardline direction when it comes to the West and also try to make a shift to the East um, towards China, Russia, and some of Iran's uh, closest neighbors in the towards the East, basically in Central Asia and uh, East Asia region. There are also, as Elon uh, well mentioned, there have been overtures and talks of uh, more engagement, better engagement with Iran's Arab neighbors, specifically Arab countries of the Persian Gulf. Um, but that also still remains to be seen because one other key aspect we need to remember is the difference between this administration and the previous administration is not just in their political stance, it also is about competence. The diplomats and the diplomatic core basically that came to power with the Hassan Rouhani administration uh, showed uh, not only a different political direction, but also a lot of competence in their negotiations, very tough and complex negotiations with the world powers. And it it still remains to be seen, but I'm just skeptical of the level of competence of this new team, even when it comes to um, dealing with countries that's more in line with their ideology towards the West or Iran's um, regional neighbors. Ibrahim Raisi himself also doesn't have a track record of much um, uh, government, basically, experience. He's been overseeing foundations. He's been in the judicial system, but this is a completely... Um, new experience for him. And of course, there's this big uh, question of succession to the Supreme Leader that Ebrahim Raisi has been groomed and promoted by a certain faction of the Iranian hardline and security forces um, to eventually be the successor to the Supreme Leader whenever the, the leadership ends, if, if he were to pass away or for any reason. And this presidency is sort of an overture for introduction for him or a stepping stone um, to be ready for that um, succession if and when it does happen. And I uh, finally want to talk about the six, the first six months of President Biden's, Biden's administration, which I think was a golden window of opportunity and has been missed, unfortunately. And this has happened in US-Iran relations that over the past two decades, more than the past two decades since, since the mid 90s, that there have been this short overlaps with the pro-diplomacy, let's call it the pro-diplomacy camp in Tehran and the pro-diplomacy camp in Washington. But the overlap has been short and the time has been lost and it wasn't very, um, if, effectively and successfully used for for improving the relations, except for um, the, the second term of President Obama and the first term of Hassan Rouhani, which we saw the results of which was the JCPOA and the nuclear negotiations. 
we had been warning me and I know some more of my colleagues and other analysts that this, this window of opportunity is important, is not something to be missed, and that President Biden should prioritize a return to the JCPOA. I think a return to the JCPOA could have been made easy and simple. It could have been done in the form of an executive order. He didn't need to lift all sanctions per se, but the return to the table, to the framework of the JCPOA would have at least made these negotiations easier. As Ilan pointed out, they have to now indirectly negotiate in two different hotels and with the Russians and everyone else, Europeans shuffling between uh, these two buildings. At least the Americans could have joined the JCPOA, sit back at the table and then negotiate a sequencing of a full return to compliance. Because as it is right now, it's still basically uh, the Trump policy continuing. The United States is still outside the JCPOA and the sanctions are still ongoing. Iran is dealing with COVID, a lot of domestic issues. And um, the, the expectation for President Biden to take this step and to spend the political capital, he had to spend um, serious political capital in Washington to make this happen. That hasn't happened. And from, from Tehran's viewpoint, um, basically, they waited for President Biden for, for nearly two years. When President Trump pulled out of the deal, Tehran decided to stick to the deal, start reducing compliance, but not leave the JCPOA. And there was this talk that they would wait this president out. There's a chance that a uh, Democrat will come and there'll be a return to the JCPOA. And then um, the, the train basically didn't start moving into that direction. And um, that didn't happen, unfortunately. The negotiations didn't start until almost four months after the uh, start of the presidency of uh, Joe Biden. And also from Tehran's viewpoint, the U.S. is still outside of the deal. They won't sit at the same table. They won't negotiate. And the return to the JCPOA has become much more complex and difficult. So looking ahead, just finally, I think the road ahead is complex is more difficult than it was during the six months, this golden uh, window of opportunity, as Elon was saying, if the Biden team couldn't do it with the moderates, it's just gonna be even more difficult with the hardliners. And if a return to the JCPOA doesn't happen, because the reason the JCPOA had to be first was that that was a stepping stone for more uh, complex diplomacy with Iran. If a return to the JCPOA doesn't happen or some kind of an interim deal that would eventually uh, put this nuclear issue back into the box. I'm very skeptical of U.S. and Iran, Tehran and Washington, um, sort of being able to agree or work on anything else beyond the nuclear program. Iran and the neighbors, it's a different um, story. There may be uh, bilateral or direct uh, engagements there, but as far as Tehran and Washington, it seems like it's a very clear line coming from Tehran that it's either a return to the JCPOA or nothing else can happen before that. I'll just stop here and um, happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Nigar. That was excellent. Uh, Barbara, we now turn to you. Thank you very much. And thank you to the Arab Center and to my panelists, uh, co-panelists, who have covered the waterfront, I think, pretty effectively. So I'll keep my comments uh, rather brief. I mean, by and large, I agree with their analysis, um, and I do think that there were wasted opportunities early on. Um, but uh, maybe I'll play devil's advocate just a little bit, just to keep this interesting. Uh, it was very easy for the so-called hardliners to criticize the JCPOA when they were out of power. Um, they are not out of power. They are now responsible. And um, 
I have seen some indications here and there that after making a show of being more difficult uh, and putting in new conditions for an agreement, they will actually return to the agreement. Uh, why is that possible? Well, Iran needs economic growth. It needs relief. And it has managed to survive maximum pressure primarily by relying on China, uh, smuggling oil through Malaysia to China, which has kept, kept the economy afloat. It's tried very hard to make its own economy more resilient. It's uh, uh, done a lot of import substitution. Um, and the impact, frankly, has been very negative in many ways on the Iranian economy. Uh, Iran is suffering through terrible environmental problems, extreme water shortages, which have been exacerbated by growing crops like rice, which Iran should not be growing in most parts of the country, exacerbated by Iranian industry, which is extremely inefficient and uh, uh, uses water that is diverted from other places. There were wide-scale protests in Huzestan province not long ago, protests in other part of the country because of environmental concerns. Uh, so, I don't think they can play with this issue forever. Uh, Raisi himself is the most unpopular Iranian president in the history of the Islamic Republic. Uh, even according to official figures, there was only a 48% turnout, it was probably lower than that. And of that, a large number of, of ballots were spoiled. Uh, you know, people voted for Batman and Mickey Mouse rather than any of the uh, approved choices. So he has perhaps the support, lukewarm support of 25%, maximum 30% of the country. And he wants to be supreme leader. He can't get there if he's a failed president, which means he's got to be able to show some kind of achievements. And if he can put a few extra demands on the table and get something uh, token in return, um, you know, he can say, well, I resolved this issue and I did it in a way that protects uh, Iranian uh, sovereignty and pride. Um, one other point, of course, is that he has a plan B, and we saw that today. I'm not sure if this had more to do with the recent announcement that the U.S. was uh, going to sell nuclear submarines to Australia than it did to anything related to Iran, but Iran has supposedly now finally been accepted for full membership in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization with China, Russia, and the Central Asians. Um, still, for Iran to be able to benefit fully, it needs to have some sort of sanctions relief because its banks are all blacklisted uh, by uh, the international financial system. So even if it wants to trade more with Tajikistan, it, it would help to have sanctions relief. Um, I will agree, though, with Negar very much on the question of competence. And as someone who suffered through the Ahmadinejad period, um, you know, does this lot have it within them to do this? That is a real question. And I'm thinking of Abdullayan, the new foreign minister, who's supposed to be this great Arabist, who goes to a, a summit in, in Baghdad and pushes his way into the front row in the group picture with the heads of state who were there, which of course is an incredible violation of protocol because he's just a foreign minister. Um, and he annoyed everyone and reminded all the Arabs present that Iranians think they're better than the Arabs. That's not a great way to ingratiate yourself with your Arab neighbors. So if this is the kind of man that Abdullahian is, uh, you know, hopefully he won't be in charge of the nuclear file. One final point is that yes, uh, Arabchi is no longer deputy foreign minister, 
but we're not 100% sure that his replacement, Bagari, is going to be in charge of the negotiations. I think that's still a little bit murky. Uh, Arabchi is now an advisor to the foreign minister, so it may be that they will take away his position officially but give it back to him unofficially. I'm sure he's still going to be involved in consultations over this deal. Um, if Iran really wants to get an agreement, it should come back into direct talks and forget this, this indirect business. Uh, and that will be an interesting sign if they have the guts to cut through. Remember that back in 2009, when Ahmadinejad was still president, Bagari and Saeed Jalili actually reached a confidence building measure with Bill Burns about sending out a, a large quantity of enriched uranium in return for fuel for the Tehran research reactor. It was shot down because of domestic political opposition to Ahmadinejad in the wake of the 2009 fraudulent elections. So it's possible they can do it uh, if there is a will, if there is consensus within the Nizam, within the system to do it, uh, they can get there. And I think we should be thinking about perhaps a token this or that that might be put on the table to sweeten it for them uh, and make it easier for them to claim that they were somehow more successful than the Rouhani team. Um, why don't I leave it there? Thank you very much, Barbara. Dahlia, over to you. Great. Uh, thanks so much. Um, and thanks to the Arab Center for hosting this. Um, I have such great colleagues and I'm the last speaker, which is always means there's not much left to say, but I'm always able to find something to say. Um, so I'm going to just make a few points uh, focused more on uh, beyond the JCPOA, uh, the future of U.S.-Iran and, and some of the regional developments that were mentioned, um, and then make a couple points on the geostrategic competition and the ways in which that might affect future U.S. strategy toward Iran and the region. And I know that is the theme of the conference. So on, on U.S.-Iran, I think it's important to keep in mind that even if uh, we managed to see a revival of, of the JCPOA, and I'm not particularly optimistic at the moment, but even if we did, um, I think, you know, nobody expects transformative change in U.S.-Iranian relationship. There's too much mistrust, deep structural barriers uh, to that. Um, and uh, I think anyone who argued that the JCPOA, the, the first one that was working, uh, would have led to that, you know, of course, you'd be disappointed that it didn't because it would never have been a silver bullet to transform U.S.-Iranian relations. It will, will, will take much more uh, to do that. So I think that's important to keep in mind. The other thing is, even if the JCPOA is revived, we are not going to see a calming down in the broader neighborhood. Um, it will be better. Uh, but for example, um, Alon uh, deferred to speak about the Israelis, but you know, after the original JCPOA, the Israelis, in fact, increased their campaign against the Iranians in Syria in particular. Uh, their concerns are about Iranian um, uh, influence and exertion of power through their militia forces in the neighborhood, especially Syria, Iraq uh, sphere. And you saw repeated attacks and they continue to this day uh, you also have the problem of Iraqi Iranian-backed militia forces attacking U.S. bases in Iraq. Uh, that is continuing to this day. So even if we get a revived JCPOA, that's not going to go away. We still have a lot of problems in the neighborhood. One thing that would improve uh, with the JCPOA most likely, and you're already seeing indications of it, 
is there may be more of an agreement with the new Israeli government. Their strategy really hasn't changed. Uh, the new prime minister calls it the death of by a thousand cuts. You know, it's still a, a strategy of keeping the pressure, including kinetic pressure on the Iranians. Uh, but um, you do see interest in having less confrontation with the United States, keeping disagreements behind closed doors, and less likely for there to be a surprise uh, sabotage attack, let's say, against Iranian nuclear facilities like we saw in April. I think the Biden uh, administration probably got an agreement from Bennett not to surprise the Americans on that front. So we may see less direct attack and sabotage on the Iranian program itself if we have a JCPOA. Uh, but um, but the regional escalation of the tit for tat is going to continue. And then if there's no JCPOA, there's really all bets are off. Uh, the regional escalation will be very, very difficult to tame. Uh, the discussions of the plan Bs that are going on right now are not terribly creative. They're basically, um, you know, we've seen this play before. It's basically continuation of more maximum pressure, more economic and diplomatic pressure. A lot of, I think, wishful thinking on the role China would play in these pressure plans. Um, the idea that we could get the Chinese to, you know, get rid of, you know, get cut their attachment to the Iranian oil and and put all their eggs in the Saudi basket and things like this. I think we're just in a very different uh, strategic environment uh, today, which I'm going to get to a, a bit more. So I think our best hope for a Plan B, if we don't have, in terms of the region, if we don't have a JCPOA is what Elon and I think uh, Barbara alluded to, which is the regional de-escalation, all the panelists really, um, they are promising. It's, it's you know, early stages, but the Baghdad summit, uh, the direct Saudi and Emirati engagement with the Iranians, um, maybe the best insurance policy we can have to, it's not gonna prevent future escalation, but it will raise the cost for the Iranians to lash out like we saw in 2019 uh, against oil assets in the region of our Arab partners um, if there is more dialogue and more at stake between those parties. So I think there's some there's some hope that even without a JCPOA, we can we can keep the region relatively calm, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna be pretty. On the geostrategic front, with our great power competition with Russia and particularly China. Uh, there's you know, two questions to address. One is the issue of, you know, is this competition hurting our chances for a revived JCPOA, a, a revived nuclear agreement? And, you know, here, I think it is pretty obvious that fissures within the P5 plus one um, are problematic. There's no question. We just saw this if there had been a last week, if there had been a censure re uh, resolution in the IAEA, um, it was pretty clear that China and Russia would not have gone along with the U.S. and Europe um, to um, uh, put pressure on the Iranians. Uh, the Chinese have a different position and the Russians. Uh, we're not starting from square one. There was already an agreement that was working. The U.S. withdrew from their, uh, their point of view. It's the United States who was in violation. And so um, the United States needs to step up. All of that is to say, though, um, we're not going to get the help. We can't expect the Chinese, definitely not the Russians, to bail us out uh, to, to figure out some nuclear deal. However, if the United States and the Iranians, for their own self-interest, and there are reasons for both sides, I think Barbara explained this well, still have some incentives to come back because the original uh, sanctions relief for nuclear rollback, that basic bargain still has value. Um, 
then I think the Russians and Chinese are not going to disrupt. They're only disrupting or kind of uh, not being particularly helpful when they already feel, you know, the U.S. and Iranians aren't getting very far and so forth. But if there's a real agreement, ultimately, they don't want to see a nuclear armed Iran either. So in that sense, there is still convergence across uh, the great powers, despite the broader competition on an Iran nuclear deal. So I don't think we should be too alarmist about uh, those powers sabotaging, but I don't think we should be relying on them to be particularly helpful. Then finally, on the broader question of U.S. strategy toward Iran and the region, and one thing I'm really, I think many of us or some of us are getting a little bit concerned about is framing um, the new focus in the region through the prism of the China threat. And the idea that we kind of are going to create a new, there's the new threat in the region today, and that's China or Russia, and that we need to uh, align our our interest and our policies with that threat in mind. And it's not to say that the Russians and Chinese are, are, are doing all positive things in the region. They're most certainly not. The Russians in particular are very disruptive, um, short-term and opportunistic, and have shown an interest in ability to use military force to keep uh, brutal dictators like Assad in power. So it's not to say they're not doing bad things. The Chinese, through surveillance technology, are doing very nasty stuff. Um, in their infrastructure development in the region. But I think we need to be careful. Um, in U.S. policy, we have this tendency to need a new threat, a new frame, something to be against. And I think there are some costs to doing that. Uh, one is, I think, um, it's not particularly realistic. Uh, we're not going to be just like we can't push Iran out of the region. We can't push China out of the region. Uh, China has strong economic interests, less military, more economic. And China is going to keep all the powers in the region, all the, the regional players are going to keep hedging. This has been going on for 20 years. This is not new. And with more multipolarity in the international system today, we cannot expect regional players to say, OK, China, Russia, U.S. is showing real commitment. We're going to stick with you now. That's not how the region works. Um, so I think it's 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 not a particularly viable strategy. Um, the other thing is that we have to recognize that China, we shouldn't be alarmist. China is not about to overtake the Middle East. The United States still has significant advantages. Uh, it cannot compete with our security architecture. In fact, it's been benefiting from that security umbrella. China is facing its own pushback. It has to straddle its relationships with Iran on the one hand and Saudi and Israel on the other. Uh, actually, the Saudis and the Iraqis export more oil to the Chinese than the Iranians do. So we're not about to see an Iran-China axis either. Um, so I think that um, we need to be careful about exaggerating how much the Chinese are infiltrating this region and avoid overreach in terms of the pushback. Uh, it's also important to note that not everything they do is zero sum. There are some uh, areas where we might be able to work together. And as I said, the U.S. still has advantages. And this gets to my final point, which is instead of the uh, strategy of constantly pushing back um, against the threat and being always against something, um, many of us in our think tank reports, and I recently was involved with when it ran, we're arguing for a different way to look at our approach to this region, which is offer a more positive vision play the game the Chinese are playing. We can play it better. Focus on socioeconomic pressures. Those and climate impacts. Those are the real threats of today. Rebalance away from this heavy focus on military commitment. Over 50% of U.S. 
military investment, security assistance, and arms sales globally. Over half of our investment globally goes to the Middle East. Only 6% is invested in economic development and humanitarian aid. This is, this is where we need to rebalance. This is how we can not only improve conditions in the region, bolster our own interests, but also better compete with the great powers, particularly China in the future, without counterproductive policies that may think we need partners on our side and we sweep other issues under the rug. And that will not bring stability. So um, that's kind of how I'm looking at the, the great power competition. And I will just close with that um, to kind of broaden out the discussion beyond Iran and the JCPOA. Thanks. Thank you very much. What an absolute treat to uh, listen to the four of you. I really enjoyed it and I'm sure so did our audience. Uh, we're running a little bit uh, late, so I ask our panelists, if uh, possible, to keep their answers uh, and comments um, short. Uh, we have a number of questions that have already come in. Uh, let me start. Uh, Barbara said uh, she'll play the devil's advocate, so let me also be the devil's advocate. We saw that in 2015, the Iranians trusted the EU and the Americans. They negotiated in good faith. And the Americans, it wasn't Donald Trump, it was the American administration that pulled out of the nuclear accord. And the Europeans didn't have the backbone to stand up to the Americans or to end, uh, live up to their end of the bargain. So why should the Iranians negotiate with uh, and, and come back to the negotiating table? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Why should they and why shouldn't they have a nuclear bomb? Israel has it. Pakistan has it. India has it. And if they're being punished for not having it anyway, why not go ahead and have it? Anyone? I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll chime in. And I also wanted to respond to a couple of other things folks have said, but I, although I largely agree with pretty much almost everything that's, that's uh, come up. I mean... One is that, you know, Iran is still under severe economic sanctions that are being levied by the United States. And the one thing the Trump administration did prove is wasn't that the Europeans couldn't stand up. It's the European companies aren't going to do business. That's the reality. The Euro European countries were willing to, like, explore ways to keep the end of the bargain. But, they're, but the way the private sector works is the U.S. market is just a lot bigger and more influential than the Iranian market. And so... Does Iran want to sell its oil? Does Iran want to get access to its reserves? If it wants those things, it's going to need to come to a deal. Now, so what I would say is like, look, I can't tell you who's going to be president in three years or four years. So you don't have to think of the deal as what's going to happen in four or five years from now. The question is today. Today, there would be significant economic benefits for limits on the nuclear program that, as Iran has demonstrated, can be pretty quickly reversed if they need to be. So this is a deal. This is. I actually view that a return to the JCPOA at this point is almost like a confidence building measure that's a first step. Um, just like a couple of other things I wanna, wanna throw out there. Um, one is just to say in this whole negotiating process, I do wish the Biden administration maybe leaned a little bit further forward in the beginning, but I also wanna just point out and make clear that most of this period, this missed opportunity, first six months, I mean, especially once negotiations began in, Virginia, um, in Vienna, from every understanding I have, is that it was the U.S. leaning pretty far forward and Iran really doing almost nothing at the negotiating table, including not being willing to meet with the Americans who were absolutely willing to meet with the Iranians. So 
we can put some on, you know, the Biden administration, not, you know, leaning far forward enough at the start. But there's a lot here that's also like on Iran's table. And you can see it because it's not just the U.S. and Europe that are frustrated with the Iranians at this point. It's the Russians. Like the Russians are quite frustrated. And I do think I very much agree with Dahlia's characterization. I would just make one additional small point is even if the U.S. and Russia fundamentally disagree on a lot of things, including in the region, on Iran's nuclear program, actually, there is a pretty good amount of agreement and there is a history of U.S.-Russian cooperation. And when the Russians and Americans cooperate and come to sort of the same view, that puts actually a lot of pressure on Iran to come to, you know, to make concessions. And that's actually part was a key formula in 2015. And you see it again happening now. You get the sense the Russians are kind of fed up at this point. And at this point, their view is really it's on the Iranians to start getting serious in Vienna because they haven't been. So I think all those things also are just worth worth pointing out. Um, and then just one actually final point is, I hope Barbara's optimistic scenario, and I know that she's playing devil's advocate, Like, and, and the fact that it exists out there is the reason to continue to pursue these negotiations, because it is still such a better outcome than all the other ones. Um, I, you know, So I just, at this point, I'm just so down on it, but you know, I hope she's right. Thank you. Both Barbara and uh, Negar. Uh, sorry, Barbara, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to add something about the why can't Iran have a bomb? This is a question that comes up a lot, you know. Well, it's a member of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, so it promised not to have a bomb. But there's another factor, and that is uh, Iranian propaganda, Iranian rhetoric still, you know, calls for the destruction of Israel as it is currently constituted. And you can't have a bomb and have rhetoric like that. It just, it doesn't work. Israel has 90 nuclear weapons, according to CIPRI. Nobody ever talks about them. Why? Israel doesn't talk about them. Israel doesn't threaten to destroy other countries with them. Uh, why, don't, uh, why don't the Israelis come clean, even though they're not a member of the NPT? Because if they did, the United States couldn't continue to give them three to four billion dollars worth of military aid every year. It would be against U.S. law since they're not a member of the NPT and they have nuclear weapons. So I just thought I'd put that on the table by way of explanation. If the Iranians would stop threatening Israel, that would really help <laughs> for a number of reasons. <laughs> um, uh, Barbara, both you and Negar alluded to the fact that uh, uh, we have a hardline team. Uh, here in Tehran now. And uh, both of you also mentioned that uh, they're not necessarily as gifted in diplomacy as the team that they've replaced. But wasn't it the supposed demagogues and incompetence of Ahmadinejad who put together a deal and offered it through, to the Americans through the Turks and the Brazilians, and it was Secretary Hillary Clinton who shot it down? because it wasn't the Americans who had been involved in crafting it? No? <laughs> Elon's also shaking his head. By the time the Brazilians and the Turks came along, the deal was no longer worthwhile because Iran had a lot more enriched uranium. It was a deal that made sense in the fall of 2009, not in May of 2010. But uh, also by then, Hillary had lined everybody up at the UN for more sanctions. So those two together. Yeah. Uh, uh, as a footnote, the Brazilians would have a different take on it. Uh, the Brazilian foreign minister who was involved at the time would have a different take on this. Negar? I just want to 
to add a note, Mehran, about your previous question, why would Iran trust the U.S. again? And this is a big question, why? In Tehran, there's a lot of discussions. Um, pre the JCPOA, it was the hardliners warning that you can't trust these Americans, they're going to shake their hand and go do something else. Uh, but they couldn't prove it. After President Trump pulled out of the JCPOA, now there's proofs. There's recent memory of how the United States shakes hands on a foreign policy achievement, two years of intense negotiations, and then two years later, they turn around and do the opposite. And this brings us back to the the point that's made about guarantees. Yes, the U.S. being a democracy, you can't ever guarantee anything for the future um, of the country. But this makes it even more important in the viewpoint of the Iranians, not just for the future as a kind of guarantee they're asking, but verifiable sanctions relief. Because one complaint that the Iranians are having is that even when the JCPOA started implementing, and this is under President Obama, it wasn't enough as far as the kind of economic opening and the financial easing that Tehran expected precisely because of uh, the sanctions, the complex sanctions regime put by the United States. So it's the verification of the sanctions relief and also this outlook that we might again shake hands with these Americans and then the Republican will come back in three years and unravel it. And then again, finally, this brings us back to the point of the first few months that I really think was a um, window of opportunity that could have gotten things started and possibly even um, more uh, moved further than just a nuclear program, but I guess that didn't happen. Thank you. There's a question uh, uh, from my old friend, um, William Grant, uh, who I believe, uh, same William Grant who was here in Doha. Why is no one talking about the amount of plutonium, not uranium, that Iran does not possess? Any professional military industry would avoid building a uranium bomb due to safety and miniaturization limits. If we follow the logic, Iran is still far from a bomb. Uh, Dahlia, would you care to comment on that? Yeah, I think, um, look, the plutonium route was taken out with the JCPOA and that the focus is on enrichment because that's where the violations are taking place. Um, well beyond the limits that were agreed to in, in the original JCPOA. So, um, it's uh, it's clear Iran was considering and uh, testing both paths, but the Iranian path is the worrying one. I would agree, though, that uh, you know some of the articles like this last week in the New York Times were very alarmist on this. Um, you know, one month away from a bomb. You know, the headlines. Um, we know that first of all, that's not clear. That's the U.S. government's official um, assessment. Also, we're talking about away from the ability to produce. We haven't gotten to the question of intention, warheads. Um, it's, there's a lot of factors that go into being able to weaponize your enrichment material. So I think we, you know, to use the expression the administration was fond of in the early months, um, we're a long ways away. I don't know if we're a long ways away, but we're, we're closer than we'd like to be. We're not that one year uh, away breakout time, which is what the JCPOA was, was aiming for and succeeded in getting. Um, but we're not going to see a breakout overnight. And we do have still very good inspections 
um, systems. Now, it's not as good as it was before. And that's one of the worst and most worrying aspects of Iranian violations is the lack of transparency right now. Um, but that said, it's still much more transparency than we had with just NPT safeguard agreements. So there, these are very good reasons of why the JCPOA is worth keeping. It doesn't solve everything, but it, it sure helped. And so I think that's important. I, I just want to make one point on sanctions, that discussion earlier about why would Iran still want this deal? And I, I completely agree the core crux of the bargain is still there. They want the sanctions relief. But it is true. Nagar mentioned, you know, and I've heard this a lot from Iranians, you know, even under Obama, there was disappointment because European governments, as Ilan said, cannot control private sector companies. And there's just so many layers that would have to be unraveled for the private sector to have the confidence to go in. Um, and the other factor I think that's a problem is that I think we may have differing assessments of the effect of sanctions continuing. Um, my understanding is in some, and I'll be interested in the co my colleagues' views, some Iran Iranian thinking on this is that um, their sanctions are starting to have diminishing returns, not just because of China's willingness to continue trade and oil imports and so forth. Um, but over time, there's just fatigue. This tool is, this is a global problem. Um, we've overused this tool and it is having diminishing returns. And so I think there may be a calculation they can just hold off um, until they can get better terms. So that's one possibility. And then on the other side, you have some in the American camp thinking, actually, we just need to give pressure more time. Uh, maximum pressure would have worked. We just have to give it more time, more time. I don't know when the end date will ever be, but that's the, my concern, just like in the beginning of the Biden administration, there may have been an overconfidence by each side that they had more leverage than they really did. And so I think that's some of the dilemmas of getting back to this arrangement is there may be really a gap between perceptions of the effectiveness of sanctions, the effectiveness of pressure, and how much leverage each side thinks it has. Thank you. I, I just want to remind us that, uh, incidentally, as a footnote, we saw these headlines that Iran is six months away from a bomb or a year away from a bomb, first in the 1990s, if I'm not mistaken. And I think we all remember these headlines. Every once in a while, they pop up. Doesn't mean they're not, you know, maybe doesn't necessarily debunk the latest one, but we've seen this before, going back to the early 19. Uh, 90s. There's another question that says it's rumored that Russia helped North Korea with a recent long-range nuclear-capable missile. Uh, do you think Russia will um, uh, render the same assistance to Iran? I'll take that. I mean, actually, let me also say one thing, uh, Mehran, about the, the six months and a year. These numbers of how long it takes, it's always very much a measure of how long would it take Iran, first of all, just to get the material necessary for a weapon if, 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 and here's the huge if, it were to make the political decision to do so, right? So to actually get to a nuclear bomb requires doing a whole bunch of things that are highly controversial and very damning and would likely be caught by global, you know, by intelligence agencies across the world and could bring major consequences for Iran, which is why the Iranian strategy over all these years has been get closer, leave open the option, but don't like take those very frightening steps. So when I was working in the U.S. government on these issues at the Pentagon, like almost 15 years ago at this point, yeah, that was the assessment. We're one year away from a nuclear weapon if they'd make the political decision to do it. Um, on the Russians, 
I think, look, the Russians will be happy to sell weapons to the Iranians of conventional weapons, but they're not going to provide them, I think, with assistance on their nuclear program or weaponization, because I think they see, you know, the same reason I was describing before. The Russians have, even when the U.S. and, and Russia disagree on so many other things around the world, including in the Middle East, like the Russians see an Iranian nuclear weapon as fundamentally like destabilizing for the region, and they don't really want that. And they have been pretty clear about not wanting that for a long time which is why they've been more constructive in these negotiations throughout. Um, and so as long as that remains the case, I don't see them helping Iran's nuclear program or elements that could help them weaponize okay. the program. Thank you so much. Uh, Barbara, uh, Iran and its neighbors. Uh, there's a question uh, under Raisi administration. Uh, can you just elaborate on how you see that direction evolving? Uh, very briefly, if you would, please. Yeah, I think that, uh, as I mentioned, despite uh, Abdullahian's rather uh, uh, gauche move <laughs> in Baghdad, uh, there clearly is an interest in, in uh, restoring relations with Saudi Arabia, which I think would be great for both countries. Uh, toning down the problems with UAE, we've already seen that. Thanks to the uh, stupidity of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, Iran already has better relations with Qatar as a result of the blockade. Uh, Iran has reasonable relations with Kuwait and Oman. Uh, Bahrain will do whatever the Saudis tell it to do. Um, so, you know, I, I do see some prospects there. I think one of the problems, though, I mean, the Saudis mostly want to get the war in Yemen over, but the Houthis have a mind of their own. And I'm not sure at this point that the Iranians could tell the Houthis to stop uh, fighting and they would do it. They seem to be making, continuing to make progress. Uh, on their own. And again, Saudi miscalculation has only led to a stronger Houthi movement and more division in the country than there even was before. Um, but uh, but yes, some de-escalation there. Iran is also very worried about Afghanistan. We haven't talked about Afghanistan. I mean, even though Iran crowed when the U.S. withdrew and said, you see, you see, you can't trust the U.S., now they're stuck with more refugees and with, a, with an all-Taliban uh, regime in, in Kabul. No Hazara representation, a lot of concerns about what's going to happen to ethnic minorities and religious minorities in Afghanistan. And uh, of course, Iran profited from all the money that was being dumped on Afghanistan. It was a great place to get dollars and to do business, um, you know, uh, to do black market business. What's going to happen now if, if Afghanistan is so impoverished? You know, it's it's not going to serve. Uh, and in fact, I read that Iran is going to have a meeting on Afghanistan of the neighbors uh, in, in, in the coming weeks. Um, so it's not it's not a problem free situation for Iran. It, it's you know, we have Raisi. He's in, in Dushanbe and he's gotten some award from the Tajiks. And they're they're trying to show that they're really part of this region. Uh, but there's there's a lot of distrust and, and certainly not the same agendas in a lot of a lot of these countries. Um, and uh, so we'll see how much Iran can can benefit with Iraq. Iran is in good condition, but Iraq is not doing very well. So, again, Iran's partners are largely failed states. Um, so it has influence. It has power. But Lebanon's a basket case. Syria's a basket case. Iraq is in trouble. I don't know. I mean, does it help to have friends like that? I, I ask. Perfect. Okay, great. That's a very good question. Uh, Dalia, just very quickly, do you think Iran will become a further bone of contention uh, in uh, US-China tensions? 
Yes, I, I do. Um, I uh, No question that that has been Iran's play uh, to use China as the hedge and protection insurance policy. And the geostrategic tension between the U.S. and China is not helping that, right? That incentivized the Chinese to, to play this a little bit. Um, but that said, I think for all the reasons I suggested, there's going to be pushback against China completely going all in with Iran because it does have really critical relationships with close U.S. partners in the region. Um, Saudis in particular, Iraqis, those are who the two that they rely on for oil imports even more than Iran. Um, arms sales um, uh, are, you know, are the relationship with Israel on trade, economics, infrastructure. So they, you know, I think that that's not going to be a for sure thing. And and just one one point, I think, on where we're headed in terms of the region and um, and de-escalation and talks on regional issues, non-nuclear. I, there was, I think, a, a hope or thought that the JCPOA would be the platform for all these broader regional discussions. But what's clear now is even if the JCPOA survives, and I think it would be a good thing from a non-proliferation perspective, um, but even if it does, it, the direction of regional talks are moving in the region and not always with the U.S. at the table. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and we see this in Tajikistan now where there's discussion on Afghanistan. Um, we saw it in the Baghdad conference uh, and we'll see how it progresses. But I think the idea missiles you mentioned are going to have to be discussed in a regional setting because the Iranians are never going to scale back their missile program, if ever, if there are not others at the table um, and dealing with other conventional weaponry. So I think the U.S. should be part of those discussions, but we're not going to be able to dominate them anymore. It's just not the world we're living in. And the nuclear framework of the JCPOA may not be the right framework <clears throat> anymore for dealing with those issues. Perfect. I see. Uh, just uh, one last. Nagar, you get the last word. Perfect segue. Uh, a quick yes or no. Is Iran's missile program negotiable? And if so, what will it take for them to negotiate over it? I think it depends on who you ask. So, and it also depends on the context and the time where this question was asked. So when this question was being put out during the years of the JCPOA, especially post-JCPOA, I would talk to a lot of moderate and reformist figures in the country, and there was willingness, there was this talk and this encouragement for JCPOA too, Barjom Do, encouraging the administration to go and talk and make more deals. After the, the withdrawal from the JCPOA, the assassination of Hassan Soleimani, assassination of Fakhrizadeh and the sabotage attacks, I speak to even reformists on the ground and they tell me at this time we can't even publicly advocate that because if they're go going to be these kind of attacks and assassinations on us, maybe we actually do need um, some kind of a defense mechanism. And this issue of the missile program being a defensive uh, structure of Iran has gained more momentum and the, the, the discourse has become more stronger and more widespread. It used to be a hardline thing, but now it no longer is and it's uh, more widespread among the different uh, political factions. Perfect. Thank you so much. What an absolute treat. We could go on and on, uh, uh, but unfortunately we're out of time. It's been an absolute treat. Thank you all for joining us for the final panel. Uh, of the Arab Center, Washington, D.C.'s uh, sixth annual conference, and for engaging with us in uh, this robust uh, conversation. A very special thanks uh, to our uh, audiences and especially to our panelists uh, for joining us uh, for this incredible discussion. 
That was a panel discussion hosted by the Arab Center in Washington, D.C. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.